You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis chapter 6 as we continue our sermon series through the book of Genesis called Foundations. And folks, uh, just a disclaimer, we, we come to probably one of the strangest and most mysterious parts of the book of Genesis. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement on the meaning of just the first few verses of this chapter. The only thing scholars do agree on is that this is one of the most challenging sections of Genesis to interpret. And this sermon, full disclosure, has probably been one of the most difficult ones I've had to put together in a very, very long time, so please pray for me while you listen. I've actually taught this passage uh, a couple of times in the, in the past. I've never preached it before, but I've teached it a couple of times in, in Bible study settings. And uh, I've I got to be honest, every time that I've come to the text, it's actually gotten harder. And, uh, and, and so we definitely need uh, the Spirit's help to uh, help us to grasp what God wants to speak to us this morning. Now, the good news is that regardless of the disputed, varying interpretations of some of the particulars of Genesis 6, I think the general overall point of the passage is, is very clear, and I pray that the Lord will drive those main points of application home. So, with that disclaimer, why don't you rise with me now, uh, as it is our custom at Harbin's to stand for the Scripture reading as a way of recognizing and honoring these words as being words breathed out from God Himself. And actually, I want us to back up to chapter 5 here. I know I said chapter 6, but let's start in chapter 5 for a little context, uh, starting in verse 28. Word of the Lord says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred twenty years." The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now skip down to verse 11 for a little bit more of a picture of what this world was like before the flood. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Let's pray. Father, speak through your word this morning. Father, open our ears and our eyes 
Father, help us to understand what you would have for us this morning. And I pray that the word would work powerfully in the lives of believers and those who came here this morning unbelieving. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. People who don't believe that humans are naturally sinful fall into one of two categories. One, they don't have children. Or, two, they aren't paying close attention to the children they do have. Uh, It does not take long for rebellious tendencies to show themselves in some way, shape, or form, even in very young children. I find it interesting that you always have to teach a child how to be good, but you never have to teach them how to be bad. That just comes naturally, even when you're very young. But that's not just a kid thing. We all have this tendency to want to push back against boundaries that have been set up. We push back against boundaries of authority whether that be in the home or in the church or in the workplace. We push back against moral boundaries, and most significantly, we push back against God himself. What we are learning in these early chapters of Genesis is that this rebellious spirit has been the legacy of humanity from the very beginning. In Genesis 3, our forefather Adam was given a boundary, you shall not eat of this tree, and if you cross this boundary, you will die. And the devil came in the form of a serpent and enticed Adam and Eve to push against those God-given boundaries designed for their protection and for their provision. And in doing so, they plunged the cosmos into a state of corruption and decay and curse and death. It It never ends well to push back against God. But God promised an offspring, a messianic serpent crusher, who would come to reverse the curse and defeat the devil. And so we're given some hope. But that spiritual disposition to keep pushing back against God is passed on from Adam and Eve from generation to generation. And so Genesis 4 tracks the moral decline of humanity exemplified in the family of Cain. But in Genesis 5, we're given hope again as we're introduced to a group of people, a faithful remnant exemplified in the family of Seth. And this remnant walks with God and calls on the name of the Lord. But the shadow of death nevertheless hangs over Genesis 5 as people are born and people live and people die. And the curse is still in effect. And that promised offspring who would save the world has not come. But then, right near the end of chapter 5... We're given, again, a sliver of hope. And that's where we left off last week. We see in chapter 5, verse 28, Lamech had lived 182 years. He fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This ancient patriarch holding his baby boy in his arms, recalling God's promise to his ancestors. He looks at this baby and he says, this one shall bring us relief from the curse. That name Noah means rest. He's going to bring rest in this offspring. The curse will be reversed. That's hopeful. And yet, when we get to Genesis 6, 
What do we see? We see the world has become worse than ever, and the overall trajectory of the human race is a continued downward spiral into deeper corruption and darkness and death. And yet, following the pattern of these opening chapters of Genesis, in the midst of a, of a darkness and curse that seems unyielding, there turns out to be another ray of hope. In fact, what we end up seeing in our text today is a microcosm of the larger biblical story of God's redemptive plan to save the universe. And there, are, there are three general themes or movements in the text that take us from darkness to light, from despair to hope. And the first thing I want us to consider is man's sin. In the secular evolutionary narrative, you have man starting out as something less than the ideal human, as some sort of beast, and slowly over time improving and progressing until finally you have a human being. Bible tells the opposite story. Bible describes a kind of devolution. In the beginning, mankind began as fully human already, being everything that that God intended man to be, righteous and holy and pure, perfectly reflecting the image of, of the God who made them. But sin comes along and corrupts man like a virus, and the beautiful image of God in man has become distorted. While in evolution, the the beast increasingly become men, in the Bible we see that because of the corruption of sin, man becomes increasingly beastly. By the time you get to Genesis 6, the world and humanity is a mess. Look at verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Now stop there for a moment. That language should be familiar. It echoes Genesis 1.28 where God made man in his image and said be fruitful and multiply. He commissioned man to spread out over the earth and as God's image bearers they would fill the earth with his glory. But here in Genesis 6, yes man is multiplying and he's filling the earth, but the result is not man glorifying God. Instead, man bearing a warped image of God is filling the earth with wickedness and perversion and rebellion. We have a reversal of God's good design. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, the identity of the sons of God is one of the most disputed things in the whole book of of Genesis, if not in the whole Bible. It's one of the things that makes this chapter hard to interpret. And and there are two dominant views about the identity of the sons of God. Now, these aren't the only two views. I I haven't time to get into all the nuances and the variations and the sub-views and those sorts of things. But but here are the, the main general views. View number one suggests that the sons of God are of the line of Seth. And that the daughters of men are from the line of Cain. Now that that actually really fits the context of where we are in Genesis very, very well. It's one of the strengths of this view. We've already seen in uh, how in Genesis 3.15 it underscores the reality that there are two groups of people in the world. The offspring of the woman on one side... And on the other side, those who don't follow God, who are called the children of the serpent. And so the suggestion is that when you get to Genesis 6, you see an intermingling of the two families. 
you have a, the compromise of the godly in joining with the ungodly. And so the sin mentioned in these first verses, according to the first view, is, is mixed marriages. People who are God followers who end up falling prey to their own lustful desires entranced by the beauty of ungodly women. They compromise their faith, and this leads to an increased wickedness in the world. This view has been held for a long time. Augustine promoted this view. This view was held by Martin Luther and John Calvin, uh, held by many modern commentators, including R.C. Sproul. And until recently, this view was held very firmly by me. Although, let's admit that Luther and Calvin carry much more weight than Webb. You'll do better uh, listening to them. But years ago, in a Sunday school class, and some of you might have been in there, in this very church, I argued with great confidence for view number one. My confidence has wavered. And the past couple of years, my view has shifted It's morphed somewhat and and it's moving in the other direction to this other prominent interpretation of this passage. View number two suggests that these opening verses in chapter six describe something even more dark and sinister, namely the intermarriage between fallen demonic angels and human women. Now, this position is actually the oldest position out there. You'll find this interpretation going all the way back to the early church fathers, uh, Justin Martyr, Tertullian. Uh, You can go even further back as as Jewish teachers before the time of Jesus held to this. And there are modern teachers who hold to this view as well, such as Albert Moeller and John MacArthur. And the strength of this view uh, includes a linguistic argument that argues that in the Old Testament, sons of God primarily refers to Uh, angelic beings. Additionally, and I think even more importantly, there are also cross-references from the New Testament that that appear to have strong connections to Genesis 6. Let me also just throw out there uh, real quick, I I think both views, the different views that are floating around out there have have a mixture of some strengths and and weaknesses here. And I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. You go home and you study on your own time, and you you can figure out for yourself whether I've come to a a good conclusion uh, or not. But I think there are some some, uh, sections in the New Testament that shed some light on Genesis 6. For example, we've got this reference here in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So we have here mention of spirits in prison. Now, almost without exception, that Greek word translated as spirits refers to spirit beings, not humans. Peter is almost certainly here referring to fallen angels. And so we discover here that there were spirits that were put in prison. Why? Because they did not obey. And when did they not obey? In the days of Noah. But then we go over uh, to, to one more book, one book over to the book of Second Peter, and we see more. It says, 
in verses 4 and 5, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So again, we have Peter referring to a long time ago when angels sinned, and now these angels are bound, they're in prison, and these angels are also associated with the ancient world of Noah. But the most revealing scripture we have is in the book of Jude, starting in verse 6. It says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, this language is very similar to what we saw in First and Second Peter. Again, we've got angels, we've got rebellion. These angels did something heinous, and they're kept in prison in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. But then Jude tells us something more. Let's expand this, this text. Again, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So, what kind of sin at least generally speaking, is Jude linking the sin of the angels with sexual immorality. Notice that phrase, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. And what cities are mentioned? Sodom and Gomorrah, known for sexual sin. And for what kind of desire? text says an unnatural desire. And we know from Genesis 19... That, the, that unnatural desire was homosexual desire, a desire that crosses the boundaries for what God established in respect to marriage and sexual relations. Jude is implying that these angels are similar. They also are pursuing unnatural desire, just like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. These angels likewise are crossing God-established boundaries in respect to marriage and sexual relations. This is an unnatural desire. It is unnatural for angels to be sexually attracted to human women. It is a perversion. And yet the lust of these evil spirits drive them to push at and break through the God-given boundaries that mark out what is good and acceptable and right. Jesus says in Matthew 22 that marriage isn't for angels. But if this view of Genesis 6 is correct, you have humans and angels crossing these God-given boundaries and going their own way. You have, I think, in Genesis 6, something going on that is very dark, very strange, and very demonic. Either you've got fallen angels somehow able to take corporeal form and actually interact with human women, or, and I lean towards this view which I think is even scarier. And that's that humanity is so wicked and evil that demonic possession is rampant. And so these evil spirits are indwelling the bodies of men. We can see from other parts of Scripture, uh, for example, in the Gospels, where it seems like these evil spirits crave to indwell uh, bodies. 
And, and here they, they, they have united themselves to the human race in a horrifying way. Now, often Christians, especially in more conservative circles, especially in the Western world, shy away from the notion of demonic activity and influence in the world. But a close look at the scriptures reveals in both the Old and the New Testament, it reveals this reality. You've got in the book of Daniel, for example, dark, invisible, evil powers. It talks about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. They are working behind the scenes, apparently exercising influence over uh, these nations and rulers. You've got on a more personal level, King Saul in 1 Samuel being driven into fits of rage as he is tormented by an evil spirit. In the New Testament, we're told that Satan spiritually blinds unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ in the gospel. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that to engage in the worship of other gods is in reality to become united to, to become partners with demons. In the gospels and in Acts, we, we see clearly the reality of demonic possession. In Genesis 6... We have a humanity that has gone as far down the path of sin and corruption as you can go. And so instead of a people indwelt with the Spirit of God, instead of that you have people becoming indwelt by demons and the daughters of men becoming their consorts. Now, however you want to interpret these first few verses, whichever view you lean towards, what you have either way is a demonstration of how sin drives us to cross boundaries that we should not cross, to go after things we should not go after, to disregard the, the boundaries meant for our provision and protection. Moses compares the sin of the sons of God to the sins of Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Notice the parallel language between Genesis 6 and Genesis 3. Genesis 3, the text says, Eve saw the fruit, the fruit was good, she took the fruit. In Genesis 6, the text says the sons of God saw the women, uh, the women were good or attractive, and they took them. Eve saw, looked good, she took. Sons of God saw, they looked good, they took. Language connotes a willful disobedience, a thumbing of, of the nose, so to speak, at God's command. I don't care what God says, I see this, I like this, I want this, I'm taking it. That's sin. That's an attitude we all struggle and fight against. Uh, some of you may have certain attitudes, certain things you are doing in your life, or, or certain patterns of thinking, and you know that it is wrong. You, you know the Bible has set up boundaries against that thing, whatever it may be, but you don't care. That thing looks good, uh, or it feels good, or it gives you something that you think you need, and so you're going to push back against God, and you're going to take what you think you need. That kind of attitude is satanic. It's as old as Genesis 6. It's as old as Eden. Now, just like we saw in Genesis 4, 
We talked about this a few weeks ago. There is this simultaneous rise and fall of man going on at the same time. In some ways, man is on the rise and becoming more powerful. In Genesis 4, we saw the rise of Cain's family progressing and advancing in technology and the arts and culture, achieving worldly greatness, yet also experiencing spiritual decline. We get the same picture in Genesis 6. There are things happening here that in one sense would point to the greatness and the success of these people, success according to the values of the world and the flesh. We've got families forming. We've got a a growing and thriving population. The women are stunningly beautiful and the men are unbelievably powerful. We're introduced to these people in verse 4 that are called the Nephilim. Look at verse 4. It says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, uh, that they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now again, another difficult verse in this chapter. Another source of debate. People are going to go in different directions on this one. Who are the Nephilim? There's all kinds of speculation about that. We're not entirely sure. Some translations render Nephilim as giants. Some translations just keep it as Nephilim because translators aren't quite sure what to do with it. Nephilim seems to mean something like fallen ones. But these fallen ones are mighty men. This name Nephilim actually reappears in Numbers chapter 13. You've got the Israelite spies scoping out the promised land, and they are terrified, and they say, we saw the Nephilim there. People in that land are large and powerful. We can't beat them. They're giants, and we're like grasshoppers to them. Whoever the Nephilim were in Genesis 6, they were so legendary that that name survives the flood and still caused fear in the time of Moses. It was a name used to describe people of terrifying might and power. They are the fallen ones, powerful, larger-than-life warriors that fall on their enemies, crushing them. Perhaps there's even the, the connotation of a supernatural kind of power. I'm reminded of the, the demon-possessed man in the Gospel of Mark. People tried to bind him with chains, and he broke those chains. Imagine these Nephilim, these fierce warriors, possibly even energized by the malevolent power of demons. We don't know everything that we would want to know about these people, but we do know, verse 4, that these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. They were strong. They were powerful. They were great in the eyes of the world. They were the movers and shakers. They were spectacular leaders, amazing warriors, legends in their own time. They are standing tall and mighty now, but they will not stand forever. The fallen ones will fall. Because God is not impressed with any of this. Man looks at and is impressed by the outward appearance. But God looks at, judges, and evaluates the heart. And when God looks at the heart of these people, what does he see? Look at at verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, in the earth. Notice again another parallel with Genesis 1. 
In Genesis 1, God commissions man to be fruitful and multiply. And at the end of the chapter, he looked and he saw that his creation was very good. But in chapter 6, man is being fruitful and multiplying, but now God looked and what he saw was not good. It was strikingly evil, but God also saw something else, something that should scare us more than the notion of, of demonic influence and possession, something scarier and more horrifying than the devil himself, and that is the human heart. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Ultimately, man's biggest problem is not the devil. It's not things outside of yourself. It's not circumstances. The proliferation of evil in the world ultimately is due to the sinful heart of man. It's one of the main points here of this section in Genesis 6. However you want to interpret the the other particulars, the specifics, that's a big deal, that's a big point. We should all see that and agree on that. God is not sending the flood to judge demons. He's sending it to judge people. The big point of Genesis 6 is that man is held accountable. And he is held accountable not just for his actions, but even for the intentions and the thoughts of his heart, which Moses writes was only evil continually. The problem with man is not simply that he sins. The problem with man is that he is a sinner to the core and a a rebel at heart. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually, That is the quintessential description of the biblical doctrine of total depravity, which teaches not that man is always as evil as he can be all the time, but that apart from the regenerative work of the Spirit in a person's heart, there is nothing that a man does that is not in some way polluted by sin and selfishness. That's not a doctrine we like. That's a doctrine that pricks at the pride of man. We want to push back against that. We want to think, well, I know man isn't perfect, but surely there's some good things that man can do. And, And I would respond that certainly on one level, there are things that people can do that you can call good from a human perspective. But from God's perspective, we are told in Isaiah 64, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, Filthy rags. Even the good that we do is tainted by sin. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's not just talking about just a handful of really bad people. That's talking about all of us apart from the work of God in our lives. Uh, uh, Psalm 14, 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. So we see in these opening verses in chapter 6 a very strong statement about the sin and depravity of man. And then we move now to God's response. How might you expect God to respond to all this? One of the most surprising ways he responds to this is patience. The book of 1 Peter talks about when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. God indeed will wipe out mankind, but not before a time of great patience. Look at verse 3. Lord says, 
my spirit shall not abide in man forever. Some translations say my spirit will not contend with man or strive with man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Now this too is a debated verse. And there's two ways you can go here. Now either route is going to lead you to the same conclusion. That this either means that God, though he will send the flood, won't send it yet. So he gives man 120 days, or 120 years, 120 years till doomsday. Or it means that God is decreeing that those incredibly long lifespans we saw in Genesis 5 of 800, 900 years, God's going to cut that lifespan down. But either way, we have a demonstration here of God's patience because even though God says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, his spirit is striving with man right now for a time. For 70 or 90 or 120 years, there is a period of time where the Spirit is calling people to repent and believe and trust the Lord. There is a time of patience that God graciously gives to sinners to repent. The Apostle Peter writes about the apparent delay of God's judgment. And he says that God is patient towards you. 2 Peter 3, 9, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now notice how else God responds to man's sin in verse 6. It says, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now that doesn't mean that God thinks he made a mistake. God, God doesn't make mistakes. The regret has to do with this sense of, 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 of emotion, of sorrow, text says it grieved him to his heart. God is not some sort of distant, emotionally, uh, emotionless deity. God's world has been corrupted. His beautiful image in man has been defaced. His glory is being obscured. He reacts strongly about that with, with, with abhorrence and disgust and great sorrow. And we also learn from the scriptures that God's sorrow over man's rebellion is also due to the fact that he cares about man. And he knows that man in his persistent sin is committing spiritual suicide. It's a dead end. It leads to destruction. God's not some sort of sadist just rubbing his hands together with glee because he can't wait to drown the world. (laughs) That's not God. That has more in common with pagan mythology, that that description of God. Instead, the scriptures show us a God who, even in the midst of man's rebellion, loves man, and the Bible says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Our Lord Jesus Christ, looking at the city of Jerusalem, the city that mocked him and despised him and rejected him, what's Jesus' response to that city? Is he laughing and jumping up and down and saying, oh, I can't wait until you are smitten? Now, he says, he says in Matthew 23, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And see, your house is left to you desolate. Why the grief there? Why the sorrow? It's not because God is insecure and his feelings are hurt because no one loves him. No, no, no. It's instead because God knows what is coming to the wicked. God is extraordinarily patient. 
But his patience does not negate his other attributes, like his justice and his wrath. Eventually, the time runs out. God's patience runs out. And so you go down to verse 7. It says, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Once again, we see in in these early chapters of Genesis that, that judgment is uncreation as a reversal of what was good. Before sin, you have man righteous and perfectly bearing the image of God. After sin, that's turned backwards and man morally deteriorates and images God less and less. Before sin, you have God creating man out of the dust of the earth. After sin, God tells Adam, you will return to the dust. The judgment of sin is, in a sense, uncreation. It's exactly what is happening in the flood. Notice this here. In the, uh, in the creation order, in Genesis chapter 1, you've got birds being created in verse 20. You've got creatures that move along the ground in verse 24 and 25. And you've got mankind in verse 26. And I find it very interesting that when you go to Genesis 6, it's flipped. God says he will bring judgment by wiping from the earth mankind, then animals and creatures that move along the ground, and then birds of the air. It's, it's, it's backwards now. God, God is going to send f- floodwaters to cover the earth, returning the earth back into a state like it was in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, when darkness was over the face of the primordial waters. The good land that God had created for man is now taken away from man. God is erasing creation. Now, as we read this story, it's easy to, to just think of it as some sort of interesting and ancient tale, but irrelevant to our lives. We read something like Genesis 6, and then we go home and go to lunch and watch football, and we don't think about what we just read. But our Lord Jesus Christ says you need to listen to the story of Noah. He says the story of Noah is pointing us towards something else even more terrible that is coming later on. Jesus says in Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says the people in Noah's day had no concern about a coming judgment. For them it was life as usual. And then, one day, shockingly, judgment comes. Today, we live in a day like Noah's time. People are eating and drinking and marrying and just doing their own thing. But we also live in a world that is full of sexual immorality and violence and people continuing to transgress and push and cross over those boundaries that God has set up. We live in a world where if you talk to people about a coming judgment, how are they going to respond to you? They're going to scoff. They're going to laugh at that. They're going to dismiss that and say, God's not going to do that. He's kind and loving. Uh, he, he doesn't care about how I live. 
Everything's always just going to continue as it has been since the beginning, since the beginning of creation. As in the days of Noah, we enjoy God's patience. But as in the days of Noah, that patience will run out and judgment will come, not by flood, Scripture tells us, but by fire. As it says in 2 Peter 3, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, if the story ends here, there is not much encouragement. But the last word in the story is not God's judgment. The final word here is God's grace, which brings us to man's hope. Verse 8, but Noah found favor... Some translations say grace. Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. When God unleashes the floodwaters of judgment upon the world, there will be global destruction, global death. The wages of sin is death. Everyone dies. Almost. The horror of judgment upon the world is not the end of the story. Noah is a sinner like everyone else, deserving of the judgment of God like everyone else, but he receives grace. But Noah found favor. That word but is so encouraging. It's a game changer. It says that when things seem to be at their darkest, God comes and God rescues. It's reminiscent of Ephesians chapter 2 which says that in your unbelieving state, you were dead in your sins. You followed the devil. You were children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive by grace you have been saved. It is only by grace that anyone escapes the judgment of God. Verse 9 in Genesis 6 says that Noah walked with God. He's like his ancestor Enoch of whom the text says, walked with God. He's like others in that family of Seth who are calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. In a world full of darkness, in a world full of rebellion, there is a faithful remnant who trusts and follows the Lord. And through that remnant, God brings salvation to the human race. God's going to have Noah construct an ark. And this one man, this righteous, favored man of God is preserved through the judgment of God. You are all here today because of the act of one righteous man. When all around there was rebellion in the world, when all around there was sexual immorality and violence and wickedness, When all seemed at their darkest, you were saved by one faithful man, Jesus Christ. The faithful remnant. A man who finds favor in the eyes of God. A man who, unlike Noah, never sinned. A man whom the Father said, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. When Lamech, in Genesis 5 was holding that beautiful newborn baby in his arms. He named him Noah, rest. And he said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Now, Lamech was wrong in one sense. Noah himself would not be the Savior. If Jesus Christ didn't come, Lamech and Noah would be in hell with all the rest of us. But Lamech was right in another sense. 
Because through the preservation of Noah's life, salvation would come. An offspring, a descendant of Noah, would one day come forward who would be the only one who could ultimately save from judgment. This one would be born into the world in Bethlehem. This one would reverse the curse of sin and death. This one is Jesus. Noah is not the Savior, but God is showing you in Noah a picture of how he will save the world through Jesus Christ. When that flood comes, everyone else perishes. But Noah is preserved through the judgment and comes out safely on the other side. And Noah's family, those who belong to his household through their union with the man that God favors, lives. Jesus Christ was hung on a cross. Our sins were placed on him, and the flood of God's judgment against our sins was poured out upon Jesus Christ, our substitute. And yet, because Jesus is the man that God favors above all men, Jesus is preserved through that judgment. He is brought safely through the other side of that judgment as he walks out of the tomb three days later. And all who are connected with or united to Jesus Christ by faith, all who are a part of his family, his household, we are preserved with him. We escape the judgment of death and hell, not because of our own righteousness, but through our union with the righteous man whom God favors. Genesis 6 gives us the gospel encapsulated. It's all there. You see man's heinous sin. You see God's grief over sin and his determination to judge it. You see the opportunity to escape judgment through the grace of God. That's gospel. If you're here as a believer, let us live with the awareness that judgment is coming. That man will be held accountable to God. And let us seek to lovingly warn the unbelieving being heralds of righteousness, as the scripture speaks of Noah, pleading with men to be reconciled to God. If you came here this morning unbelieving, and you know you're a sinner, deserving to be swept away in the flood of God's coming judgment, know that right now you live in a time of God's patience. But I do not know how long that patience will last. You may not live 120 years. You may not live one more year. But what I do know is that today is the day of salvation. Today, you can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the work he has done on the cross on behalf of sinners like you. Demonstrate that belief through repentance, through a turning away from evil and a turning towards God. And you too can be saved. And in Christ, you will find relief from the curse. You will find rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy and inspired word. I pray that you would apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.